thank God. Dear Lord God, we are very grateful for the opportunity to stand before your word in such a way that we submit ourselves and our ideas to it. We'd ask that you would be helping us understand. In your son's name, amen. Looking at the first chapter of the Epistle of James, and I I don't make no promises. When you look at the first chapter of anything, people go, I wonder if next week's going to be the second chapter. (laughs) Is this a series? It'll be a series if it ends up a series. The future is not fixed. But there's some wonderful things in James 1. And there's the thing about James 1, it's like packed front to back with proof texts. Either proof texts or admonitional texts, ones that you quote when somebody has a need. If it's got that bit about wisdom, let him ask wisdom. Um, no one let him say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. Uh, all good things. Every good endowment, every perfect gift is from above. We love going to portions of James 1. But I suspect that as James sat down to write to the saints, he wasn't going, okay, I better get all of these platitudes out first so that they have a nice list that they can make posters or in the current age of Facebook posts out of. He may have been talking about something, And it seems like since what he enters on is so serious and so unacceptable, um, maybe he's talking about that. So we're going to look at whether or not he's holding to a subject, not just, and I I don't mean to disabuse you of your proof texting and your quotation, they they might actually apply in those circumstances. Uh, I'm wondering if it's a subject that leads through the verses we have. James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greeting. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. That is the rudest thing. It's hard enough to convince a Christian that they're supposed to be joyful, just generally. What do you mean? You're, you're trying to say I'm supposed to be joyful? Darn it. I'm supposed to be this all the time? And so James says, oh, let me push you down a flight of stairs here. When it gets worse, then neutral. You go on to work, you get your paycheck, you pay your bills, you raise your kids, you do it. And God wants me to be joyful? Oh no, yeah, yeah, that, rejoice in the Lord always. But here, let me phrase it this way. When you get fired, now I don't know, I don't know, I want to give you the options here. There's nothing that you won't escape, okay, but the word trial here is the same word that is translated as temptation later in the, in the, in the passage. So you've got this trial-temptation dichotomy in which way are you going to look at that word. And you may choose to look at them all the same way or you choose to look at them uh, different ways in different parts of the chapter. It's up to you. But we do know 
that when he's talking about temptation with that word, he's talking about temptation to sin, following your desires. So here at the beginning, it may be a persecutorial trial, like going to trial, meaning various trials, or even the fact that he says various, it may be, well, he's understanding that there are different kinds of this thing. There are trials and there are temptations. But he says, count it all joy. Now, the reason I'm thinking of this as a, a passage that may hang together and not just be a series of, of quotes is that he goes through that wisdom bit, then he talks about lowly brothers and rich brothers, and then he comes back around in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures trial. It's like he never left the subject. So, bear in mind that I'm looking at it this morning as if he's staying on subject and that their intervening bits on wisdom and on wealth are in light of that. You don't have to view it that way. We do know, we do know that a verse that will come to mind when I'm talking to someone about, say, persecution, that kind of trial. I have the verse here on Acts 5 on the side. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And it was one I picture you say, oh, it's so awful right now. It's so secular. It's so sinful. The religious people are beating you up. Officially. And letting you go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we all know that point of rejoicing. All right? We know that point of rejoicing. It's, it's being a martyr. And there have been groups of Christians in history that actually valued martyrdom so much they kind of stepped into the punch. Made the Romans or whomever hit them just harder. You know, just the Montanists were that way and others. Because you know that martyrdom, I always envied Justin Martyr. I mean, he had it in his last name. Evan, maybe not martyred, but uh, had a, a, of the difficult day. That would be about, about all it would get. We know that it's a valuable thing, and it's worth rejoicing over. It identifies, I got hurt for Jesus Christ. And they rejoiced in that. But that's, James is not writing about that. He understands that. But he says, you count it all joy, brethren, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It, you're rejoicing because of this effect. There's another rejoicing because of this measurement of you, if it's a persecutorial trial. But you also... In the worst, the various trials, you have persecution, you have temptation, all of them are a testing of your faith, and it produces steadfastness. Now, steadfastness is one of those words that you don't often define in your mind. 
Um, it's sort of the opposite of instability. It means that you planted your feet and they didn't move. You know, that, that it, you, you, you riveted it and it was made fast. I think they, I think in Acts, that they say they, they tied someone fast or something like that in Acts. Well, whatever they mean, to fasten, right? You, you fasten things. So steadfast is, is really planted and immovable, not in, unstable. That's what you're dealing with. And that this testing is a cause for joy because it produces the steadfastness. So, those of you who go, again, I still marvel that you have to talk to Christians about joy as if it were, you know, medicine they had to take. This is joy, folks. Count it all joy. Now, if, you're, if you struggle with that, you've got other problems. But here is moving on into where the world goes wrong for you, whatever way. Intentionally, enemies of God are coming after you. Or two, just life is filled with temptations that are, that are a crisis in your life. You're supposed to look at that and say, you know, I'm being tested and how I believe. What I, when I say my faith, it's not just this ephemeral word that you apply to things. It's, it's a body of, of claim. What do you believe? How steadfast, how not unstable is it? Tom and I were talking yesterday about, or the night before, I can't remember, it's all blurred together, uh, about uh, philosophical conundra that get handed to you. How does the Christian deal, you might say, emotionally with it? And Tom was in philosophy at uh, Boise State. And, uh, and that, and people who like to think know that the trials that come on them, just like the trials that come on a housewife with her children, are different than the trials that Evan is experiencing with his brow furrowed in his library all alone. Okay? <laughs> I have a furrowed brow because I'm thinking about a certain question and a mom is chasing her disobedient children around the basement. Different trials. But what do you believe? Are you steadfast in it? Because, verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Guess what? Not only does the Lord tell you that joy is in this phenomena, of the testing of your life. But it is your career path of what we're about as Christians to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now, why don't you like that? I mean, some of you go, yeah, preach it. Others are going, I don't like Evan. You don't like St. James. Okay? The, or you don't like this Christian measure of things. Or you say, Evan's misunderstanding St. James. I'll go get a commentary. We'll fix this. When you look at what you're told to do, 
it might be a good thing to start to break it apart into its equation and say, count all joy, various struggles, because I'm being tested. That's the very nature. Well, that's the reason I don't like it, right? It's, it's, it's calling something to account that is based on my discomfort. Okay? This is why testing is, whether it's temptation or persecution, doesn't matter to me. It steps into the basic equation of how, how do you treat your comfort? Is it growing? Is, are your chairs comfortable? Are your clothes comfortable? Are you in good health? Are you, well, you know, whatever. Are people trying to hurt you? All of a sudden, the whole pain-pleasure arrangement in your life becomes a centerpiece. So what's the deal? You're not supposed to have it be the centerpiece. The wisdom you have, or the wisdom, your understanding, and he goes in to say, is that you'll be lacking in nothing. You'll be perfect and complete. And you ever wonder why people like the apostles could put their hands in their toga pockets and whistle into the, in front of Caesar and know that they're going to get their head lopped off. And they, they, they were happy to die for Christ. Happy to die for Christ. But it's going to hurt. Oh, you old Nancy boy. It's going to hurt, is it? Cutting your head off? Of course it's going to hurt. But why would you... Root canals hurt. Why did you get one? Well, because you have to endure certain things to resolve certain things. If you lack wisdom, it says just in verse 4, lacking in nothing, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God. I think... He is saying, in this, in this, if you lack wisdom, this is not just, we don't just imagine words like faith, steadfastness, uh, uh, maturity, just the words in the air above us. We don't just write them on a refrigerator, we don't just make a poster. We're going through things that have practical paths to them, and he's giving you the illustration of wisdom. This is how the need for wisdom in a trial comes home to you. This is how you, what do you do? Let him ask God. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Because, remember, the trial for which you need wisdom is calling you to account on certain understandings of how life is. Why does God let bad things happen to people you love? Or you. Why does it hurt so much? Why am I dying? If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask. This is not just a, a, a magic faith that just sort of hops so real Christians have magic faith and they, they don't have to worry about things. No. Let them ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. He, it's a subset of the your, your, your faith being tested for its steadfastness and here is wisdom which is needed in the situation and that testing is met by faith and steadfastness because then he illustrates what steadfastness looks like. He said, let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. He just illustrated what instability looks like. I can't go to him with... um, You know how much I hate brokenness. Um, But I really hate, and I hope this is not on anybody's wall at home, especially at dudes. Because I think it was a painting done for dude Christians. And it's Jesus, full length, holding up a guy, kind of a rugged, manly guy in his t-shirt and jeans, but he's collapsed, and Jesus is holding him up. Well, I believe Jesus holds you up, but I can't stand that picture. It it tells you, you know, it's in your brokenness that Jesus brings things. You have got to believe. You can't come to him with a cheap, yeah, I kind of like the story of Jesus. I, I need some wisdom. Where is it? Download that puppy. It's like all of you with Kindle. Okay? And I blame you. You're bad people. I'm sorry, Frank. I don't make the rules. I just apply them. My wife sits up in bed with her little tablet reading books. Now, I believe in the sanctity of marriage, and it will not be broken because of this. But the Kindle um, prevents you from knowing the value of anything you read. Because you could download you know, ancient Assyrian documents and the latest, you know, bodice buster romance from Danielle Steele with as much ease and as much cost and you can sit there and read it in the glowing light of your computer. And you don't know the difference because you don't know how much it cost you. You don't know what you were after. Now, when we look at what's unstable, remember the testing is there to produce steadfastness, because it tested your faith. And when the man looks at wisdom, he says, I can't ask with doubting. I can't expect to get anything from God when I haven't given his, my belief in him, full time in my mind. Because double-mindedness isn't good enough. But I'm struggling. I'm shut up. Double-mindedness is not good enough. You believe You don't also believe in yourself. You don't also believe in the way of the world. You don't also believe if if you just had more money. If you need wisdom and you want it from God, you've got to pursue it in such a way that uh, proves that you value it, proves that you believe it, because you can't expect to receive it. Just download it to your mind. I'll show you a passage on that in just a moment. And then it goes into this statement about verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What in the world? Where did that come from? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. So I've got a rich and lowly brother. Both of them boasting. One in his humiliation. One in his exaltation. But if you say, I'm in the middle of a topic, I'm not just turning to this in my, you might say, my uh, 
Christian socialist tendencies that you, you, you downgrade the rich and you upgrade the poor. What you do is you say, in this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And in this, let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. What do they mean? Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away, the rich. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he explains how this humiliates the rich man. But he's talking about a Christian rich man. So about a Christian poor man, he's boasting in his exaltation. The Christian rich man boasting in his humiliation. Because what happens in trial? You lose stuff. Your health, your money, your standing, your prestige, your ministry, your, your friends. You lose stuff. Christians, what did the apostles say? Lord, we gave up all this stuff. Lands and houses and family for you. We know that the world is a price we have to pay, perhaps, in the trial. That's what the temptation in the trial is about. The temptation hangs the pleasures of this world, the good of your wealth, the benefits of your life, out in front of you and say, do you really want to lose it? Do you really not want to have this comfort anymore? Because that's where the world goes for their answers, right? Because the world says, uh, you know, the best thing that could happen to you is to be good-looking, wealthy, and healthy. Those are the things. The pleasure of life. So, a pretty, well-to-do sorority girl is the top of humanity. Human history is magnified to its exquisite point when she's really good-looking and from a rich family and that gene kind of gene code that everybody gets a cold, well, the rest of us walk through our whatever annual flu. She's out there playing tanned tennis. <laughs> and then you see her 30 years later and she still looks good because that's the perfect human being. And if you're that girl, God bless you. And the rest of us, guys, we want to marry her. Because that's the, per hold it, that's not actually the perfect human being. But if what we're promised by the world, our pile of money, our pile of health, our pile of looks, our, whatever the measure is in the desires of the world, you have the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, those are the things of the world. The Christian knows walking into the trial, he may have. His poverty and his wealth are all at at disposal. You know that the, the grass withers. That concept comes out of Isaiah 40 here. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, 
and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. Everything that we build, you know I'm a utilitarian, you know that you know, everything is dross, everything is fading, everything is decaying and dying. That's just the way this world is. And when I have run to it, because when I'm double-minded, that's my other mind. You, you've got no other way out of life than trusting the world you're in or trusting the God you're given. You have those two choices. If I'm double-minded, I'm a Christian who's trying to have both of those. My kind of Christian mind, my Christian faith over here, but then I get up in the morning on Monday, and it's going to be the way the world teaches me to function. Maybe not wickedly, but just trusting in it instead of the word of our God. Because it says, blessed is the man that endures trial. He's back on it. Not just rejoice, count it all joy, but bless it. You're going to be made perfect. You're going to be made mature by this. Something about this lesson that has, you know, hopefully you learn it in your reading of the scriptures and not when you get slapped by a trial. But you can learn it, slapped by a trial. Sometimes that's what we need. Because the comforts of this world either by their loss or by receiving it. Solomon learned futility because he succeeded at everything he did. I mean, he was absolutely wealthy. He had every girl in town. Good architects, great dancers, probably good music. And he hated life because even with all of it, it was futile. So don't wait for that. You will never get there. You will never get the thousand wives. Because a man doesn't think he has had an opportunity to really try to make himself happy until he has a thousand wives. And then he realizes, what special hell is this? <laughs> if you have a chance, just has nothing to do with the sermon. Rudyard Kipling wrote a great little short story for kids called The Butterfly That Stamps. It's about Suleiman bin Daoud and his problem with his wives. All 999 of them. So it's a great little story. But what we do, we try to build enough houses, build enough problems, build enough difficult circumstances. And we're told to measure it differently. How am I going to learn who God is to me in this world that offers me something else? Riches. Answers. Because what, what riches are just the thing about money. Money is the, um, what's the word? Um, it's a medium of exchange. We use money. Well, the, the, the scriptures say it. Bread is for laughter. Wine gladdens life. But money answers everything. Okay? That's why we like money. It's not because it especially feels really good or, or the artwork's really, really great on it. It's because I can make that dollar into something. Go down and buy a Coke. Get a bunch of them, buy a car. I know what money means. And so when I 
claim the riches, when I am not willing to boast in my humiliation, when the rich man faces various trials, he faces a circumstance he's not just supposed to be rejoicing in, but his steadfastness realizes that as it is drawn away from him, it's claims of reward. Not that it isn't good to spend money on good things, but that your belief in it, your belief in it becomes your other master, your other faith, your double-mindedness. Because that's, that's what the world believes in. That my job is to stack up as many pleasures as I can until I die. And I hope that they have a cure for that before I die. But we're supposed to be learning something from these trials. Blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, just like up above, the testing of your faith, he will receive the crown of life. Do you want these prizes? Do you want steadfastness, maturity, crown of life? Blessing? Which God has promised to those who love him. And they say, not to everybody who's a Christian, but to those who love him. What does he say in another spot when, with... Uh, um, as I thinking in First uh, John, if you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. This is for someone who loves God. Your face is turned towards Him. Your face—that's what love is in every ap application of it, whether it's friends or family or whatever. Your face is turned towards these people. You establish a communion with them. You attend to them. Hatred is turning away from. If you love God, you've turned your face toward him. If you love the world, you've turned your face toward it. If you're double-minded, you're looking back and forth. And the Lord has kept the crown of life for those who love him. He has promised it to those who love him. But it takes standing the test. Happy is the man. The word blessed is just happy. What do you mean? Don't start that again with the joy thing. Yeah, happy is the man who endures trial. Let no one say when he is tempted, and it's the same word, when he is tried, he's on this subject, and you can have it both ways, trial and temptation, meditate on it, think if one is more stronger than the other, but I think this defines this usage as definitely a moral temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it would be a natural thought to think that if this so much is coming to you in the steadfastness of your Christian life through trial, through temptation, somebody's theology is going to suggest it comes from God because it's a, such a good tool. We always find out how good our military is when a real shooting war starts. But just because, a, and sometimes the military likes it when a real, when we invaded Grenada back in Reagan's years, I think it was, it was a real crossover point for our military because we had been a little gun-shy, no pun intended, uh, since Vietnam. 
we're not sure that we're ready for prime time as a military. Grenada wasn't much of an action, but it was action. And the people on the other side were not your drill instructors pretending to shoot at you. They were people who were trying to kill you. Suddenly, it, as I think it was uh, Shammy Johnson said, the prospect of being hanged focuses the mind wonderfully. We know that when death is there, we get focused. But we don't say that our own nation put them up to it. That some dark conspiracy is driving all nations to go to war with each other. Well, you might be that kind of conspiracy uh, character, but God is not in on that conspiracy. He is not the agent of your temptation. He says, don't say that. Don't believe that. He can't be tempted, and he doesn't tempt. Where, whence the temptation? And this comes back to what, why the steadfastness, enduring the temptation, learning something from it, is because the trial has come to you courtesy of your own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's the enticement, whatever the agent, friend of yours, spouse, some arch fiend in the heavens, whatever it is, it's, it's dangling the world in front of you and your desires combined with that enticement give you the trial. It is basically asking you to believe that going that direction will answer your trouble. But I want you to stop and look back over what you were just offered by God. If I were to be steadfast in this, if I believed him instead of believing the answers the world was oh too ready to give with a, a pile of pleasure or a pile of, 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 of earthly philosophy, um, versus what God wants to give me. He says, you know, you've got joy, blessing, perfect and complete, lacking nothing, having wisdom, a uh, crown of what? A crown of life? These seem to be pretty good, pretty good things. As Christians, you'd, you'd think you'd want to wake up in the morning thinking, yeah, I'm on that track. I'm understanding. I step through my trials, my temptations and my trials, in such a way that I have learned who my God is in my universe far more. And I hold these measurements by him. What do you get for the other way? Because when you're tempted, you're learning and enticed by your own desire. That's the promise. Because the other side is promising you something. My desire, Matt, right? My desire of the flesh, my desire of the eyes, and my pride of life. Somehow it's being met. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Now it didn't say, it didn't say the temptation was sin. It didn't say the desire was sin. God made your desires. Temptation could happen by a completely innocent source that just dangled something in the way of you. It's only when it is conceived does it birth, give birth to sin. I have to somehow 
become the paternal maternal agent of of this urge. But sin comes out of it, and sin, when it is full grown, brings, brings forth death. Congratulations. It's a lovely family, looks just like the parents. You look like hell, you look like death. That's the reward of it. Um, But desires are so brilliant. They're so... And it's, it's, not saying, it's not saying that the desire is sin. It's not saying the temptation is sin. But it's just my mindset that says, I believe in that path. I believe that that path I should love like I should be loving God. But I've decided to love even the honest pursuit of my urges. I'm not a bad person. I'm not beating anybody up or stealing things or raping anybody. I, I, I just want my share. A solid wage for an honest day and a chance to go out and drink with my friends and have a hot wife and all the rest. I want to have those things. There's not too much to ask. It's that sort of mind that says, I don't want to ask for sin. I just want to believe in my desires. I want to believe that my desires are my cause for joy. And that's when you have this fight with God. He says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And surely Buddhism is better than this. Let's go over there and check out Hinduism because this is unacceptable. This is the test. Do you find that the trials in your life, you're learning to understand your world as a Christian is? Because God is not against your desires. He's against you loving your desires. He's against you serving your desires. When it says that in 1 John, it uses the word agape. Don't agape the world or the things in the world. We have that kind of service to our urges. And even if it wasn't that kind of love for sinful expression of it, do you believe, you might say, in the authority of that world? Because those things, you live by those things, you die by those things. And you find that the love for the Father is not in you. And the rewards of the wisdom and the joy and the blessedness and the crown of life are not given to you. Oh, you're still faithful to church. You still, and you love it when they create programs because then you can get involved in a program. And then no one will spot you, your, your family, no one will spot what a rat bastard you are inside. And you may never do a grave crime but you will have lived your life in pursuit of a faith that is not in the Lord. We know that the world can take all the things away from you. It can take all your stuff, and it can take your life. And what does it say? Do not fear him who can kill the body, and after that can do nothing. But fear him rather, once he is killed, can cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Where is it? Because this is the, the, your trial moment, temptation or persecution or difficulty, 
is when you find out that the world is going to kill you at the end of this. Okay? All of us here, to a man, to a woman, are not getting out here alive. We're all going to be dead. Uh, 70 years. Let's just say 70 years. Even Mari. Look at that. She's what? 11? 12? Almost 11. You seem so mature. 70 years. I give you 70 years, Mari. I have far less. <laughs> I can see it from here. Better slow down. Yeah. <laughs> He's not live on wheels. He's my conscience. <laughs> not effective conscience, yes. There are other churches. <laughs> the I probably needed to be spanked more than I was spanked. <laughs> Do not be deceived. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He comes out of that, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good endowment, every perfect gift is from above. It's like I gave you the list of the things. Joy, blessedness, perfect, mature, uh, what is the word? Uh, lacking nothing, blessedness, crown of life. That's what's from God. If I stand into the moment of life being, life killing you, of course it's going to hurt, of course it's going to sting. What did you learn? That the good God is giving you good things and he wants to be understood as not the one who is the source of the temptation or the trial. He is the one that's the source of the answer. The blessedness in it because we understand where good endowments and perfect gifts come from. There's no variation or shadow due to change. This is the way he is. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of fruit, first fruits of his creatures. Now there's basically in this, when you're asked to go into a crisis situation, a trial, a temptation, you're asking where does, what did I turn my face toward? Do I turn it towards God? So many Christians are not in the word, their mind is not you might say, react with Bible to their mind. But if you're going to be going after God, if you, want, if you want this to work, if you want the good endowments and not living on the basis of what the world teaches you, you have to have that, no, I have the passage, not on the sheet, but in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. You, you, you're not waiting for this prayer download of wisdom, prayer download of maturity, full effect, joy. You're not getting that fed to you as if they just reprogrammed you from Jesus. You set yourself to that. 
Just like it said with the, with the flower fading, where did it tell you things were? The word of our God. That's where it sits. But if the word of our God is just this convenient book that you always carry Sunday morning, or have a devotional reading in whenever number of times a week, is it the word of your God lasting forever? Is it setting your mind on the things that he describes? He describes a world much different. He made this world, but he didn't make it to be obeyed. And especially in its fallen state, where all these errors of judgment are dangling out in front of your basic desires that will destroy your life and lead you to death. You have to take on his measure of the world. He has a desire that the word of truth, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit. This is something that you have to take a hand in because it's a hard instruction. Blessed is the man. Rejoicing is what you're supposed to be doing. And in the worst possible circumstances, and you're not going to answer it by fixing by the world's measure, even by good and holy measures, earthly things are not going to fix it. You're going to have to understand the mind of God. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you for this morning. In your son's name, amen.